The following podcast is an Embassy Row production. Hey everybody, I'm Mark Lamont Hill, owner of Uncle Bobby's Coffee and Books. I'm also a professor, a scholar, and most importantly, a book nerd. I say book nerd because I don't just love to read books. I'm the guy who loves to read about the book. I love hearing authors talk about how and why they wrote the book, and I love hanging out with other book nerds to talk about our favorite books. That's why I started Coffee and Books. It's a podcast all about books. So every episode, I sit down over a cup of coffee with the world's biggest authors to discuss the most interesting, controversial, fun, or important books. Sometimes we just hang out with experts, fans, and other special guests to talk about some of the greatest books of all time. But there's always a great book, and there's always a cup of coffee. And today, I am excited to be joined by my friend, my former colleague. He's a correspondent for NBC News and MSNBC. He is also the recipient of the 2019 Walter Cronkite Award for Individual Achievement by a National Journalist and the 2019 Hillman Prize for Broadcast Journalism. His name is Jacob Soboroff. He's brilliant, he's wonderful, and he's written a wonderful book. It's called Separated, Inside an American Tragedy. Jacob, so good to see you. Mark, good to see you too. Thank you so much for having me, my friend. Good to be reunited. Oh my God, it is a pleasure. Now, normally with coffee and books, not only do we talk about awesome books, but we have a cup of coffee and or tea. Are you a coffee drinker by any chance? I love. I just actually finished my cold brew, so I've transitioned to a little sparkling water, which my four-year-old son would say is very spicy and disgusting. <laughs> I'm inclined to agree with him. And cold brew is a very <laughs> good choice for the summer. I actually like that. So I've been unfortunately dealing with COVID this week, so I did not do coffee. I'm instead doing a rooibos tea with uh, some ginger in it and a little bit of turmeric. Can I just say, I've known you for a long time. As you said, we used to work together at the Huffington Post. You're the only person who would very casually just say, I've been dealing with COVID this week, so I'm not having coffee, just a little bit of tea. Now let's talk for an hour about books. (laughs) I don't know how you do it. And seriously, I hope you're feeling okay. And I know everybody that's listening is pulling for you. I appreciate that, man. I'm hanging in there. And I appreciate the fact that you have said repeatedly, hey, we can reschedule this. This really isn't necessary. But I was really excited to read your book. And it actually was one of the things that has given me energy this week is thinking about these issues and thinking about policy, which for some people puts them to sleep. For me, it actually kept me awake. In fact, it may have even terrified me a little bit. So let's get into the book. Why write this? This is your first book. It's my first book. And the reason that I wrote it, honestly, is because I covered this in real time, right? The family separation policy. I saw it all with my own eyes when we all experienced it together in 2018. And all when I say all of it, I mean, really, what we all saw I walked into that former Walmart that was holding 1,500 young boys in Brownsville, Texas for 22 hours a day. And I'd never seen it. I mean, who's ever seen anything like that? I went into the Border Patrol processing station in McAllen, Texas, where the children were in cages, sleeping on concrete floors under mylar blankets, uh, supervised by security contractors in a watchtower. It does make me sick to recall that and repeat it every time I see it. But the the truth of the matter is, and it's almost an admission that I I have to make and I wanted to make in the book, I didn't get it. Our own country could have done this um, to anyone. It's not only inhumane, uh, it is by definition torture. Uh, It was a systematic torture campaign by the United States government, and that's according to Physicians for Human Rights, the Nobel Peace Prize winning organization. Yet I did not see it coming, and I was covering border issues. I'm from Southern California. Let's go there for one second, because this, that's, an, yeah. that's an interesting, one of the interesting arguments in the book or, or themes in the book is that you didn't see this coming. Yeah. And I wonder if in 20 years we'll all be talking about all the things we couldn't see coming. 
and what that'll mean with some historical some historical distance from it. Trump ran, and you acknowledge this in the book. I mean, he ran on a campaign that had draconian immigration policies. I mean, he ran on a build a wall campaign. Was it unwise for us to assume that that was just bluster and that he had, he was going to have a, a fairly normal right wing immigration policy? I think so. In retrospect, I think so. And knowing what I know now, what I should have known then, uh, yeah. I mean, I read in the book about how the first time, the only time I ever came face to face with Stephen Miller was in this ballroom in Colorado during the primaries. And my reaction to hearing him scream about the tragic death of a person here in California at the hands of an undocumented immigrant, but, but the, just the way he was talking about it was, who the fuck is this dude? And what is he talking about? He was so angry and directing his his venom, not at the one person who killed Kate Steinle, this young woman, but at all immigrants. And it didn't compute with me. It was so out there that I said to Rachel Maddow that night on her show, I mean, we almost were, were joking around about how Trump was going to get his clock cleaned at the Colorado primary and he had no chance of winning the presidency. And then fast forward a couple months later, I'm at the Republican convention on the floor standing in the Texas delegation, all these people wearing the, the big Stetson hats. And I'm thinking to myself, you know, what Trump is saying is about the wall. They love him because the wall. And it wasn't about the wall at all. He used this phrase, end, catch, and release, as a euphemism for doing all of this stuff. Family separation was, I now know, a part of that plan all along. And I just I just didn't see it. And I think you're right. You know, 20 years from now, who knows how we'll approach this differently. But it's a big regret of mine, and it's part of the reason that I wanted to write the book. No, absolutely. Let's talk about catch and release because, again— that that's something that comes up in the book. It's a key policy that's been used and sometimes described wrongly. What is catch and release as a actual policy? What's described as catch and release is the idea that migrants who come into the country are released into the interior while they wait for their court proceedings to take place, to be adjudicated, to find out if they'll be allowed to stay in the country. The thing is, entering the country is not a federal crime unless you're charged with it, right? So there's no reason to be detained indefinitely. Uh, in this immigration court system because you're not a criminal. And so oftentimes you were paroled out into the country while you waited for your case to be decided. And the Trump administration really took that as we're allowing people to come into the country who have no right to be here and live amongst us. But immigration lawyers and advocates and activists will tell you that's exactly what they should be doing. If you're coming here in order to establish roots, to declare asylum for the vast majority of these cases, of course you have a right to come into the country and stay here uh, until we figure out what's happening to you. The idea of locking you indefinitely until the immigration court system can get to your case uh, is inhumane. And obviously Trump didn't see it that way. And the number one way they thought they could deter people from coming here, uh, and deterrence is something that you know I'm sure we'll talk about, but it's been the border policy of the U.S. government for decades, Democrat and Republican, and always failed, was to, was to separate families. That was their Trump card, pardon the pun. They thought that by doing that, they would scare people away from coming here who thought that they might come into the country and be released into the interior. And that didn't work either. Spoiler alert. People are still coming to the country despite family separations because deterrence never works. It only harms people. It seems intuitive to, the av- to many citizens that, well, yeah, if we make it harder for you when you come, you'll be less likely to, to, to show up. What are we underestimating? What are we missing in that calculation? That the people who are coming here are coming from desperate, desperate situations. One in particular that I've seen with my own eyes, and Guatemala was the largest sending country during 
family separations was I went to the departments of Chiquimula and Zacapa in Guatemala, where uh, record-breaking drought and climate change has destroyed the coffee industry, which has historically been the cash crop in these areas. And people are literally starving to death. They're malnourished, they're impoverished, and their only option is to leave in order to support their families. If you ask people in those communities, like I did, they'll tell you, of course, we don't want to leave. This is our home. Why would we want to do anything but stay here? But there is no other option that plays out all across different parts of Central America and, frankly, around the world. We have people coming. People were separated from all over the place. The woman who ultimately came to represent the class in the Miss L case, which won the reunification of all the separated children, 5,400 of them, was Congolese. People are coming from all over the world to come to this country and to receive asylum. And that's the the connective tissue, desperation for a better life and for a future, and oftentimes not just for yourself, but for your family. One of the calculations, one of the arguments that Trump was making and the Trump administration makes is that there are illegal points of entry, which not only bring in these bad people, but they also bring in the drugs. That a bunch of awful stuff is getting smuggled through the country through these illegal points of entry. Your book forces us to rethink that a little bit. It's true. And, you know, the one thing that used to come through in between ports of entry often was weed. But weed, I mean, I'm in California where I could go to the store and buy some weed right now if I wanted to. And that really changed the equation about what's smuggled in between legal ports of entry. The vast majority of hard narcotics that are coming into the country today are coming through legal checkpoints, like the one that you might drive through if you're driving here from LA down to uh, the beach. You see and pass the same people in the blue uniforms that you see at airports when you're coming back through customs. Um, These legal ports of entry are where most drugs are coming from. And the Trump administration, both for the wall and as an excuse to put in harsh immigration policies like family separation, were pointing to, and wrongly so, areas in between the ports as justification for putting in harsh policies. Uh, And it's just not backed up in facts. In fact, if he read his own DEA reports, President Trump doesn't read much, I gather, from what people say. And so I don't know that he'd be a good guest on this podcast. But, but if he did, in his own government reports, he would learn that drugs are not coming through areas with no wall. They're coming through legal checkpoints. And it's just one of many underlying justifications they have for their restrictive policies that just isn't true. Is your sense, and again, I don't want you to play armchair psychologist. Mary Trump may come on in sure. a few weeks. And maybe she'll do that for us. But do you think that Trump is, was ignoring throughout this time his, his, the intelligence, ignoring the arguments from advisors about this being illegal and violating so many international laws as well as the Constitution? Do you think he just ignored that? Uh, do you think he convinced himself that it wasn't true, that he had people in his ear saying it? it I mean, I'm trying to understand how he arrives at this con- uh, conclusion that's so different than his predecessors in some ways. You know, who knows what is in Donald Trump's head? I have no <laughs> idea. But what I do know is that at multiple really important key inflection points, People within his administration warned that family separation would be disastrous, that the idea of separating one, much less 5,400 children, would result in lifelong trauma for these children. And that doesn't take rocket science. That's the American Academy of Pediatrics, who they're now citing, by the way, as the reason to reopen schools. The idea that they're now citing the same organization that was probably one of the most vocal critics of the same family separation policy is very rich. But I digress. You know, I'll give you some examples. Commander Jonathan White, the lead federal health coordinating official ultimately in the reunifications, time and time again, warned the government, don't separate kids. If you do, not only will we not have enough bed space for them, which will lead to trauma for them and overcrowding, but it's going to damage these children. Childhood trauma leads to a century of suffering, uh, is the thought there that one official told me later on. Kirsten Nielsen, 
was warned that family separations by her own legal advisor would potentially violate the constitutional rights of migrants coming to the United States. But she signed on the dotted line, nevertheless. All of this is stuff that I didn't know at the time. I mean, this is why I did the book. But in digging deeper, I learned that I used to say there was never a plan. And this is a man-made disaster, and this is chaos, and this is the Trump administration in a nutshell. The truth is, in reporting out the book, there was a plan. There was a plan to save the lives of these children, but at every turn, the politicals and the administration, and, and ultimately the buck stops with the president, ignored that advice. And, and now look, you have these 5,400 children, some of whom we still don't know where they are, where their parents are, and if they'll ever be reunited. You talk about soon after inauguration, I think it may have been in March, or soon after inauguration. Yes. I mean, they began organizing and having conversations about this policy, and you describe the tone of celebratory. Celebratory, that's right. There's a celebratory tone as they're talking about a separation policy. That's not the kind of sober decision-making that I would expect from a president, right? I mean, there's one idea to say, look, we have to do this. This is awful, but it's necessary. Even if I conceded to that point, I mean, but the idea that they were almost excited to do it, it speaks to a level of cruelty and indifference that I, that I didn't expect, or, or maybe I expected from Trump, but maybe not from other advisors. There's a few things there in, in that question. I guess the first part is, um, how, was this always the plan? We, even before like election, we knew the wall was on his mind, right? Even though that was probably, un, it was clearly undoable. But what about the rest of this? I mean, was separation something that was like the go-to move for him from, from the election cycle? From what I know now, I think the answer is yes, because there were people you know, and it always comes up when I talk about this or on social media, you get pictures of the facilities with the cages and you see Jay Johnson walking through and people say, oh, Obama started this. And the truth is, Obama was, they called him the deporter in chief. He certainly deported more people than any other president ever. And immigration activists did not like his immigration policies. He built the facilities with the cages to deal with the surge of unaccompanied children coming, but he never, ever on a systematic basis separated children from their parents in order to deter them from coming to the country. However, it was a policy proposal during the Obama administration, and it was rejected. It got all the way to the Situation Room. I talked to Jay Johnson. I talked to Cecilia Munoz about this. They're on the record in the book. And they told me that they could never do it. Who could, morally? But there were officials in law enforcement within the government who were holdovers into the Trump administration who almost immediately started pushing this idea because they had had it back then, and they now they saw Donald Trump and his promise to end catch and release as the way that they were going to do it. So you mentioned this meeting and the celebratory tone, Valentine's Day 2017, like two or three weeks after Trump was inaugurated, they all get together in the office of Kevin McAleenan, who uh, was at the time the acting commissioner of Customs and Border Protection. Uh, and there are officials joking about stamping passports, denying asylum applications, laughing with each other. And some of the other holdover officials from the Obama administration describe the, the, the tone, not only is celebratory, but say they left shell-shocked, almost like, how could, this, how could this be where we are going? So the answer to your question is, yeah, I do think that they were planning this from the very earliest days. And there were officials who had wanted to do this before Trump was president, who now saw this as their big opportunity, and they, and they seized on it immediately. One of the things you say in the book is that this is actually a potentially winning policy for him, which sort of struck me. I mean, and I guess now, looking at the rest of the world, or the rest of Trump's world, you know, the economy, which is something he was banking on, is collapsing. Uh, obviously, no one runs on education. Certainly, public health is not going to be a feather in his cap. Nope. It's sort of scary to think this actually may be one of his best arguments. 
I guess. I mean, look, he ultimately wanted to restart the policy. I write about a, a Marine One flight with Kirsten Nielsen in March 2019 after he had to end the policy. And they're flying to tornado damage in Alabama. And instead of thinking about all the people on the ground, he leans over to Nielsen and he says, you know, we got to reinstitute that. And she says, sir, I'm not sure I could do that on my own. And Melania Trump interjects and says, no, 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 we can't do that. And Trump says, we'll see, we'll see. He wanted to bring this back. His advisors didn't want to end the policy. They saw it as something that not only could help him ultimately end catch and release his immigration goal and deport unaccompanied children back to their home countries immediately, which by the way, they're doing anyway now during COVID under the guise of COVID, using COVID as an excuse, Um, but they saw it as a winning political message. You know, I'm not so sure that it is ultimately come a general election. In fact, I'm sure it's not. Look, you had hundreds of thousands of people in the streets protesting the family separation policy. Do I think anybody's going to change their vote? I actually I actually do. I mean, I, I was watching Rachel Maddow talk to Mary Trump, and Mary Trump said this is the thing that got her to go and speak out, family separations. And, you know, while she's always been adversarial, I'm now learning with her, her uh, uncle, I do think maybe there were people that were in the camp of President Trump for one reason or another that might take a second look at him because of the cruelty of this policy. Adam Serwer said the cruelty is the point. And that's exactly what this was. And if you want to stomach and tolerate cruelty and you can stick with Trump, I guess that's your thing. Um, But I don't see how anybody can do it that has a moral compass. The intervention of Melania Trump for me was also shocking. I mean, she's been someone who's been critiqued and, and we, we've done our own again armchair analyses of her of her fashion choices the messages on her jackets you remember that with regard to these issues i mean so uh i was somewhat surprised to see her interject there yeah me too ivanka trump also you know i heard and talking to multiple sources pushed back on the policy the question that i always have is did they do it out of political expediency because they felt the pressure or did they do it because they really didn't like the policy i remember ivanka trump i did not put this in the book but i remember ivanka trump later on said something to the effect that the family separations was one of the hardest times for her in her life. And it made me think like, yeah, but I think it was probably harder for the 5,400 parents and children that were traumatized for life. You know, look, there were people inside, even, look, there's a DHS official that I quote in the book who says it's one of the biggest regrets of his career. I forget exactly what this official said, but it's in the epilogue and, and they know it was wrong. You know, they know what they did was wrong. In retrospect, it doesn't mean though that they wouldn't do it again. I think they believed it worked. I think they believed it scared people away from coming. And the truth is that it really didn't. It's just policy has changed now where the punishment that's forced upon migrants is of a a different form. They're being made to wait in Mexico, or they're being turned around immediately when they get here, or they're stuck inside ICE detention where COVID is now exploding like it is in prisons across the country. It's just a punishment of a different type. Talk to me about Scott Lloyd. Yeah. And this is hard to say because, I mean, this this is a book that at every chapter made my stomach turn just a bit. And that's a testament to his reporting, everybody. <laughs> it's a great Thank book. Thank you. My writing is so bad, Mark <laughs> couldn't take it. It's it's hard to believe that people could be this cruel, and cruel really is the only word I could use. Yeah. It's one thing to separate people, but there's also this idea of saying, we're going to separate people, and we're going to have a list yep. of the families that are separated, and then we're going to consider destroying the list so that they can never find... I mean, if I were making an evil character, in a movie or in a cartoon, like if I were taking like Gargamel from the Smurfs and, you know, and, I mean, like if I just thought of like just the worst people imaginable, like they wouldn't do this. It, it, the writer's room would be like, no, no, it's too much. No one will buy this. These are real people. Anyway, Scott Lloyd, he, this decision about the list just blew my mind. Let me tell you about Scott Lloyd. Scott Lloyd was the official that the Trump administration put in charge as the parental guardian over 10,000 children in the custody 
of the Office of Refugee Resettlement. He was the parental custodian of these children. And Scott Lloyd immediately was a controversial figure. He, he attempted to stop young migrant girls from having abortions in government custody. And once family separations were happening, the incident that you talk about took place. Caitlin Dickerson, the reporter for the New York Times, published a list, a secret list of 700 separated children that was being kept by one of Scott Lloyd's career employees, Jim De La Cruz. It said that 700 kids had been separated by the Trump administration, and nobody had ever heard that number before. Nobody had seen that number before. And it was uh, shocking. It was explosive. Like I said, Scott Lloyd's initial reaction to that list being published was not to track down the children to reunite them with their parents. It was not to ask the Department of Homeland Security, what are you guys doing? It was not to call his bosses in the White House to say, stop this policy immediately. The people that work for me say you're going to hurt these children for a lifetime. It was to have the thought, let's get rid of the list. He goes into the office. He queries his staff. Why are we keeping this list? Can we just talk with DHS on a case-by-case basis? And his own employees took those questions in a subsequent meeting as basically an instruction, if not an order, to destroy the list. And if it wasn't for these career employees who had the best interests of children at heart, that critical linkage of 700 children would have or could have been destroyed, and those children may have never been able to be reunited. And at the very least, it would have been extraordinarily difficult. And Lloyd, by the way, subsequent to the book coming out, now acknowledges this. He did say he, quote unquote, briefly considered this. He disputes that it was a critical linkage and that the children wouldn't have been able to be reunited, but that's just not supported by the facts. Yeah. I mean, I don't know what the argument would be for how they could have reunited absent that list. That It's a strange argument, but again- Well, here we, I mean, look, let, let me just say about that, Mark. Here we are today. We still don't know where all the children are. We still don't know where all the parents are. And that's because of poor record keeping. That was one of the other things that had been warned by career officials in the government, whether it was in ICE or HHS or DHS or people in NGOs. They said, if you separate, there is not a mechanism to keep track of the children and parents. Scott Lloyd's department was informally keeping track, and he was the one that wanted to end that informal tracking of the children and the parents. We talked a little bit about Obama administration, but another one of Trump's go-to moves is to say, well, Obama did it too, right? I mean, we've seen this with lots of stuff, even if it's not true. Even if it's stuff related to COVID, right? I mean, he's like, oh, Obama did it too. Right. <laughs> How complicit is the Obama administration in this? And is there anything that the Obama administration could have done to have made it more difficult for the Trump administration to take it up to the next level? I mean, the Obama administration separated a limited number of families for the safety and security of the children. If the parent was a violent criminal or was involved in narco trafficking, stuff like that. I'm talking about relatively tiny amount of parents and children compared to the the separations of the Trump administration. And it was by no means a systematic policy. But where I do think that not only the Obama administration, but the Bush administration, and especially the Clinton administration were complicit, is that they pushed a deterrence-based philosophy of immigration enforcement for decades before Trump got into office. And I think that Prevention through deterrence, the 1994 official policy of the Border Patrol, built the first wave of infrastructure walls and sent people through the desert on dangerous and deadly journeys. The Bush administration's massive expansion of the Department of Homeland Security, the Obama administration's deportation machine. All of these things teed up the Trump administration to be able to easily institute a family separation policy because deterrence was the underlying philosophy of immigration enforcement all along. Nobody was cruel enough to actually do what the Trump administration did, 
And certainly in the later years of the Obama administration, they used much more discretion uh, and were more tolerant of people coming to the country. But it wasn't necessarily one administration that was more complicit than the next. It was the American immigration system as a whole made this very easy for the Trump administration to do. Why is this the line, though? I mean, there are many people who have argued that the immigration policy of the United States, as you said, Democrat, Republican, year in, year out, is inhumane and cruel. And there are so many policies that would support that argument. Why is family separation the line that makes even the average American who's not particularly interested in immigration policy say, OK, enough. This is just this is just too far. Maybe because we got to see it. You know, we all got to see the images of the children by themselves. We heard the audio of the kids crying for their mothers and fathers and the Border Patrol agents joking that it sounded like a symphony. We were all children if we don't have children. And we know what a connection with a parent means and how important it is. And the idea that systematically the government would do this to so many children, I think, was a dividing line. Arguably now, things are worse, although I don't think the families that were separated would tell you that. You're right. I mean, I think it was a visceral moment. And now we're two years away from it. And I think a lot of us have forgotten. And a lot of this same type of stuff is happening now. In fact, family separations are possibly happening now in Pennsylvania, where you are at the Berks Detention Center. I mean, there are kids today who are at risk of family separation. And the deadline is July 27th for the Trump administration to decide whether or not they're going to separate. It's a matter of there's a lot of important things happening in this country that takes all of our attention. It does. It takes a lot to focus on this. The question of legality is another thing that, again, has been argued. I mean, there are many issues in, in this country and really around the world that we appeal to international law. We appeal to respective constitutions or whatever that nation, nation states, you know, a formal body of laws are to say, hey, we can't do this. The Trump administration was warned that this is not only a bad look, this isn't just bad optics, but we're pretty sure that this violates several laws, Right. Was there an internal legal dispute about this, or was it simply a disregard of uh, pretty clear evidence that this is just something we can't do? No, very clearly, the General Counsel of Homeland Security warned the Secretary of Homeland Security this would potentially violate the constitutional rights, the due process rights of migrants, on top of a bunch of American laws. But she went forward with it anyway. If this was happening in another country, 5,400 kids were being systematically stolen from their parents. You don't think that people in this country would be outraged and say, you got to go to the Hague for war crimes. That's one of the main questions that I get over and over again from people on social media is, are there any consequences? Will anybody be held accountable for this? And one thing I learned as an advanced guy in politics is if you don't know the answer, you say, I don't know. You know, it's because I, I really don't. I don't. It's, it's partially a lack of faith that people will be held accountable for it and a worry that, that this will fade off into the distance and people won't remember it. And that's that is why I wrote the book. You know, another reason is that we can't forget that this happened. I mean, this this falls into a long line of injustices perpetrated by the American government, and it should be chronicled as such. You did something that I appreciate. I, I love a good story, right? And, and there are many political books that simply give us the data, that simply give us talking points. But you also gave us a very compelling through line, a very compelling storyline of father and son, which helped us make these abstract people, these abstract stories real, and suddenly we're captivated. Talk to me about them. Yeah, sure. Juan and Jose are the father and son who journeyed from Petén, Guatemala, to come here to the United States after being threatened by narco-traffickers. And I, I read it in the beginning of the book. There are literally 5,400-plus stories. Every one of them should have its own telling. And it's, this is their story to tell. 
those aren't even their real names. They pick the names because they're worried about the family they left behind in Guatemala and their safety. The reason I, I, I wanted to document their story is not only did I come into contact with Juan when he was detained and coerced into signing away the right to be reunited with his son, and were it not for an immigrant... This is in Arizona, by the way, just for context. Exactly. So they cross in Arizona. Juan is brought to the desert in Southern California. Jose is brought to South Texas. They don't see each other for nearly five months. And were it not for an immigration attorney, they may never have, because 400 parents were deported without their children. I asked them, and I wanted to include their story, because Juan is not your quote-unquote perfect migrant. He had crossed two times before illegally to come to the country just for work. And I remember when he told me the story, and I read about it in the book, he kind of laughs and says, yeah, they didn't catch me. Mm-hmm. But when he was threatened and he came here with his son, they became one of the thousands who were who were tortured in the words of positions for human rights by the government. And just because he had come before and, quote unquote, broken the law, does it make it okay? You know, I, I am a, uh, a non-practicing Jew from Los Angeles, so I'm not a biblical scholar. But when I did hear... Reverend Al Sharpton give the eulogy for George Floyd and talk about this biblical idea of a rejected stone becoming the cornerstone. It resonated with me when I was thinking of Juan. He's not a perfect guy. Yeah. Nobody's perfect. But do you deserve to be tortured by the government that you're going to for refuge because you've made mistakes in the past? It's an easy answer. And that's why I want to include their story specifically in this book. It was, in many ways, for me, a powerful story for that reason, just like George Floyd, just like Eric Garner. You know, I think sometimes, at, particularly at this juncture in history, where we're getting a more sophisticated understanding of what social justice advocacy can look like, we no longer believe that people have to be perfect to be useful. That's right. And in That's fact, right. the measure of who we are as a nation is probably better assessed b- by what we do for people who aren't perfect, right? It's much easier if the person's a quote-unquote perfect victim to say, oh, well, we want them to be fine. That's right. That's but if right. someone keeps sneaking in the country, we still have to have a disposition that says, hey, no torture. You know, it, w- it was hard for me to hear people say, it still is, that these folks deserve what they got. Who deserves that? It doesn't matter what you did. You, you just said it. You don't deserve to be tortured by the place, by the people, by the government that in your mind represents your savior. And that's, that's what happened. And that's why we shouldn't look away. One of the things that I was looking for in the book, and this isn't so much a critique as much as it's just a different, it's a different angle of, of where the book could have gone, is a sort of unpacking of the racial politics of this, right? Yeah, and, that's true. I mean, because what I wonder is, we talk about immigration policy, and very often when Americans say immigration policy, they're speaking about very specific immigration policy. It's hard for me to imagine that there'd be 5,500 kid, families separated or, or that there'd be a, a former Walmart filled with children from, from Sweden or even Russia, you know, in the same way. How much of these policies are able to be enacted or advanced due to how we imagine particular ethnic and racial groups? Yeah, I, I think I do regret. Well, you get at that, but I mean, be, yeah. No, I, I think I do regret not being more explicit about it. In fact, you know, I write a lot about the reporting I did for NBC in the book. And one of the things I didn't write about is a story that I did that I think gets right to the heart of this, which is far more people come to this country illegally, so to speak, by overstaying their visas from Asia. I mean, frankly, any country that you can fly here on an airplane from and go to school or go to work legally, and then you don't go home. But the Trump administration focuses on almost exclusively brown people who cross the southern border. That's just undeniable. And, it, you know, it's true. I'm glad that you brought that up, because in all the stories that I did do, 
it, that's one actually that stuck with me the most, and I didn't include it in the book, but it is. It's an it's an undeniable fact about immigration politics, and I think that the racist politics of that are they were on display from day one, right? The Mexicans are rapists and criminals coming down the escalator, the gold escalator. Donald Trump said it from the beginning. And I don't think that you can divorce this policy from that sort of philosophy. Yeah. Let's talk a little bit about the writing process. You know, you are a political journalist. You are a a reporter, you're a correspondent, and you decided to become a writer, uh, a professional writer, a book writer. Why make that pivot, other than the fact that you had this great story to tell? Because there's lots of great stories to tell. You know, I don't know. I, I felt like I had a lot more to learn, more than to say. And so as I learned it, I guess there are certain ways you could do it. I could have made a documentary. I could have done a bunch of series of reports on on television. I just, I was encouraged to, actually, by uh, Katie Turr, my friend and fellow MSNBC reporter. She's an anchor. And uh, she had written a book, and she said, you know, we grew up together here in LA and she had said, you ought to, you ought to put all this down somewhere. Cause I would always talk about, man, we're a year, we're a year out and nobody's talking about this. Look, listen to all these things that I learned. I had done some reporting. I was never like a, a print reporter, but I had done some print reporting for NBCnews.com subsequent to the policy because of these things I was learning. And I just realized I had so much more to learn. And then to say, I, I just started sitting down right now. I'm talking to you from the, the laundry room in my house. I sat down in this room. Just writing, and I went and I, I talked to Peter Hubbard, a editor at Harper Collins, and I told him I told I just told him everything that I knew and that I was learning, and he said, you know, we ought to, we ought to go for this, and that's how this this whole book came about. I never, in my wildest imagination, thought that I could write a whole book with a ghostwriter or myself, and I ended up doing it myself, and it was is a crazy, crazy as you know process. You know, multiple times more than I do. <laughs> What's your writing process like? How'd you go about doing this? lock myself in this laundry room that I'm sitting in. Basically, the, f- the first thing I wrote for the entire book is the scene where I was throwing up in the Arizona desert on a tour with the Border Patrol. Because uh, yeah. it was an impactful moment for me, you know, thinking like, I'm out here, I'm vomiting because I'm, I'm bouncing around on a tour with the Border Patrol, yet people do this without, it, not in a big SUV with armed federal officials, and they do it because they're desperate for their lives. So I wrote that first. And then I kind of just jumped around between different things that popped into my head about the experience. And then when I really got cooking was I went and pulled out the little blue notebook that I had taken notes in during my tours of the detention centers. And that's when it really clicked. And I said, this is the spine of the story. These are the, these are the moments that really were the formative moments for me in reporting on this. I got to go back to these moments, start at these moments, and then zoom out from here to figure out how did I end up seeing all this and in so doing, tell the American people about what I was seeing. You focus a lot on your sources. You focus a lot on your your notes. I mean, even in the book, you reflect on, you know, like you just said, going back and making sure you had that notebook. Yeah. And so many reporters have come under assault for not engaging in careful note taking, for not drawing on their sources properly. How careful were you? How attentive were you to that practice of, of going to the sources, going to going back to your notes. I mean, again, some people for these types of books aren't are, are pretty loose with it. And you seem to be the opposite. Was there like a fear of doing it wrong or was it just like a discipline? Are you kidding? You... I'm still terrified. Somebody's going to call <laughs> me and say something. The book's out and I'm terrified every day. I wake up feeling like I'm going to throw up. And I, I swear to God, I really feel that way. I've always been this way. Like when I wrote my thesis 
in college. I just, I get like really obsessed with details in this weird way. And so, yeah, I did. I went back to a lot of the sources that I knew. And actually, I decided in the book to write a narrative sourcing section instead of just put footnotes because I wanted people to know sort of what my process was. So I, I worked with a fact checker who actually did Katie's book. He was extraordinarily thorough. You know, after I did my own fact checking process with my sources, um, this independent fact checker called everybody to, or almost everybody, to make sure what I was doing was was right. And and luckily, you know, it checked out. I mean, this stuff's important. You can't mess this up. I want this to be a guide to people who are going to make those decisions one day. And so to do it in any way that was sloppy or not, that lacked the integrity that the book like this deserves would have been irresponsible, I think. The timing of this book is extraordinary. How intentional were you about writing a book that would come out within, you know, three months, you know, four months of maybe the most important election of a generation? As far as the timing, I just wanted to get it done. I started it just over a year ago. Look, it's one official said to me, this is the greatest humanitarian catastrophe of my lifetime. And so to have this come out after Donald Trump was out of all, I mean, this is not a, I think anybody who's going to vote against Donald Trump is going to vote against him, whether or not they read this book. And that's not my intention, but he's still the president. And people in his administration who were involved in this policy are still there. And they're involved in the coronavirus response and other really important policy matters. And the idea of waiting didn't sit with me. You know, I just felt like I had to get this done and get it out because not only are the the families affected, some of them still in limbo, but there's other things. And, and I mean, a global pandemic at the top of the list where some of these same characters are involved. And so to not get it out quickly didn't feel right. It just felt like the right thing to do, to write this, not as quickly as possible, but as responsibly as possible in a prudent amount of time and then, and then let everybody make up their own minds. There's an old school tradition of journalists not having a point of view, of not advocating for particular policies, but sort of just making the case about what happened. And like you said, letting the audiences make their own decisions. Of course, someone would argue this book has a point of view. Some would argue this is even an advocacy book, right? I don't know if I would go that far. I think you're just t- just doing careful reporting on something that happened. It just happens to be a really bad situation that just is indefensible. But did you worry that you were moving away from the kind of objective journalist position that, that many of us uh, expect from people like you? At the time I did, in real time as I was reporting this, I, I kind of worried, like when I came out for the first time and said, look, those are cages. I don't know any other way to describe it. There was something that sat weirdly with me, like, I don't know, is this, am I not supposed to say that? But I just, in a split second, I didn't call anybody, I didn't ask, I just did it, because that's what I saw. You know, I, I don't actually, I mean, who's objective? Everybody has their own subjective position on everything. I don't believe that it's po- humanly possible to suppress your own lived experience, your vantage point on something, the way you interpret events. It all goes through that filter of who you are. So to deny it is not only, I think, untruthful, it's probably unhealthy, right? Like to, you know, armchair psychologist again, but like to suppress the way you actually feel about something in the service of a watered down version of it, I don't subscribe to that. You know, I surely am a fact-based journalist. I surely want what I report to be based on what I'm seeing. But if what I'm seeing is inhumane or immoral, I have no problem saying that. We're at a moment where the best-selling books 
uh, political books aren't necessarily ones based on fact-based journalism, but they're tell-alls, they're memoirs, they're polemics. There are all sorts of other things that really get the people going these days. I mean, I, we just saw Mary Trump sell 950,000 books in the first yeah, day. I, I, I didn't look at your numbers, Jacob, but I suspect they're just a little bit short of that. Yeah, it's true. Do you think the public has an appetite for fact-based journalism anymore? And I guess it's the same argument can be made for, for fact-based reporting in TV, right? Do people want that or do they just want the opinion stuff? I mean, do we have an appetite for that kind of reading these days? What I will say is, I am absolutely shocked to see my book land at number five on the New York Times bestseller list. Did I think that ever anybody would read in the volume and the numbers that they are separated inside an American tragedy? Never in my wildest imagination. Immigration policy books are not books that go flying off the shelves. So I'm thrilled that people still care about this story and that family separation is back in the headlines. But you're 100% correct that by an order of magnitude that I can't even contemplate, Mary Trump's book, John Bolton's book are just such bigger hits uh, than than my book will ever be. And I don't know, people like salacious stuff. I, I noticed this about when my book came out, the things people wanted to talk about were like Katie Miller, Stephen Miller's wife, telling me that her colleagues didn't think she was compassionate enough, so they sent her to the border to see for herself, and it didn't work. And that she didn't think we should have little Havanas and people should assimilate. Like that popped for the first week the book was out, and that was like the salacious details that people wanted to talk about. I guess that's just the publishing industry or the way that the media machine works. Although I do think that that did get to a deeper kind of ethos that was behind this policy. So I don't know. It's a it's a double edged sword. Those kind of details sell books, but they also can reveal something about what the what the book is about as a whole. I still have faith that people care about about fact based journalism. Hmm. Are you a writer? Do you identify as a writer? I guess now I have to. <laughs> you don't. Um, What's funny, yeah. because lots of people write lots of books. I mean, really good books and still don't think that they're a writer in their, in their hearts. They don't feel that way. So I don't want you to feel compelled because you have a New York Times bestselling book to be a yeah, writer, to say yeah. you're a writer. I don't know. I even have a hard time saying I'm a journalist. Even till this to this day, I have a hard time saying I'm a journalist. I, I just always look at myself as someone who goes to places and reports back on the facts on the ground, the old military and diplomatic phrase. I go and I see, I, I say what I see. And I, Walter Crockett had this quote about holding a mirror up and just showing the world what you see. That's what I think my job is. I think I got one of the greatest jobs in the world that I get to go do that. I guess I got to do that in, in the form of a book, which in some measure makes me a writer. Uh, I get to do it on TV, which makes me a correspondent. But I just see myself as somebody who, has an extraordinary privilege of being able to do this and share my experiences with other people. I don't know what to call it. When you're not writing, who are you reading? The last book I read was a book by Eric Nussbaum uh, called Stealing Home about the uh, land where Dodger Stadium is, Chavez Ravine, and how the residents there, largely Mexican-American, were displaced in order to build the stadium. It's It's a story that I think has been told many times, but the level of detail that he told the story is extraordinary. Uh, next on my list is was your last podcast guest, my friend and MSNBC colleague, Eddie Gloud. Ah, uh, begin again. Begin again. Yes, exactly. I'm sitting right here, right next to me. Um, the total honest truth is I don't, I guess writing the book, I didn't read a lot. And now I have the time to read more. So there's a whole stack of books sitting right here. I wish I could show you um, that I'm ready to dive into. Wow. Well, before you go, I'm going to torture you the way I torture all of my guests with a game called Buy It borrow it or burn it. Okay. I'll give you three 
three books, one you can buy, one you borrow, one you burn. Book number one is 1984 by George Orwell. Number two is The Jungle by Upton Sinclair. And number three is My Remarkable Journey, the autobiography of Larry King. <laughs> burn the Larry King, although Larry was once my idol. Uh, um, borrow Orwell by Upton Sinclair. Ah, that totally, that went too easy. I, I don't feel like that was sufficient torture. All right, you got to tell me, so you got to tell me why. So Upton Sinclair, I thought you were going to borrow. That's what I had in my brain. Why? I thought that the trouble for you would be between Orwell and Sinclair. Uh-huh. And so I thought, just because Orwell's considered a masterpiece to so many people, and because of the kind of political moment we're in, you, you might be drawn to that one a little bit more. But it, Upton Sinclair makes particular sense for you, obviously. Well, the, the, the idea of the exploited worker and the exploited lives for me, look, I, I do a lot of reporting also about just what it's like to live. What are the issues that people really care about? And it always comes back to the ability to make a living and survive today, the conditions people face, the, the fact that our government doesn't serve you, our systems of power are not serving people. And I suppose that 1984 could also in some measure fit into that category. But and the truth is, I don't think I have a copy of The Jungle here, and uh, and I would like one. And I do have a copy of 1984. That works. So when I think about The Jungle, and I think about that commitment to not just good writing and, and good reporting, but also opening up, or putting a spotlight, rather, on a problem for the American people, it makes me think of the work you're doing and, and, and how powerfully wow. you've done it. I, I really enjoyed the book. I, I was really excited by it. 1984, again, I think we're in a 1984 moment <laughs> in so many ways. We are. And I'm hoping that works like yours help us un, uh, uh, sort of undo the spell that's on us, uh, the political spell that's been on so many of us, man. Um, I have to say, I'm really, I'm, I'm moved to hear you say that, Mark. And sorry to interrupt you, but I, I'm very, very grateful to have this conversation with you. You know, we've been friends for a long time. One of my favorite things to do is come out to New York and work with you, sit on the set at HuffPost Live and get to work together. Uh, and this oh, yeah. is bringing back really good memories for me. No, me, me too, man. This is this, it's been a pleasure. And it's it's been amazing to watch you grow as a journalist and just as a wonderful human being who's doing important work in the world. So next time you're in New York, we'll hang out again over some coffee and or tea. I will be COVID free and most likely we'll have a different president and there'll be no <laughs> ugly immigration policies and maybe we can catch a baseball game. I would love that. I would love that. All of the above, man. So I, I appreciate it, Mark. All right, man. Good to talk to you. Thanks for everything. Thanks for listening to today's episode of Coffee and Books. If you want to purchase any of the books discussed on today's episode, go to UncleBobbies.com. That's Uncle B-O-B-B-I-E-S.com. Make sure to check out all other episodes of Coffee and Books wherever you listen to your podcasts.